Hello, this is Janet from JanetSandberg.com, and you're listening to the Phoenix Wisdom Podcast, the weekly show that talks to peers and professionals who open up about their darkest moments when they felt like ending it all, why they didn't, and how they transformed their lives in order to triumph over the darkness and despair. Please remember to subscribe if you'd like to hear more inspiring stories. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Wisdom Podcast. I am your host, Janet Sandberg, and I am joined today by J.P. Marsh, who is one of our ever-growing number of male guests on the show, which I love. It is always great to hear a different perspective, um, whether it's from where they live in the world or how they grew up. It's everybody's story. It's never ceases to amaze me. Everybody's story is kind of the same, but also just a little bit different depending on, on who you are and where you're from. So welcome JP. Um, how about you take a second and introduce yourself real quick? Well, thanks for having me. Um, I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be here. I am a 41-year-old single girl dad that lives in a, a pretty rural area in Montana. I uh, grew up in a similar place in Oregon. Um, now, later in life, I live a more peaceful life, a simple, you know. Um, but... It wasn't always that way, obviously. Right. You wouldn't but be here that, on the know, podcast. Just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's my life has been like a boat on the ocean. It's just up and down, you know, whether I was the one piloting it into the storm to make the waves and make everything be chaos or, you know, you know, anytime you got extreme highs, you get extreme lows. So it's yeah. just kind of what I've experienced anyway. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into that a little bit. Um, obviously, you're a guest here on the podcast because at some point you thought about ending your life. So let's go back to that point. What was going on then? What made you think that life was was not worth living anymore? Well, I mean, it was, I don't, you know, I mean, I would say that it was probably a, an accumulation of different things that really mentally made it hard to try to, you know, be an optimist or, you know, make it through the day. And, you know, when I was, there was a lot of trauma I guess, or baggage, you know, from the way from growing up, from being a kid, nothing to do with like physical abuse or, you know, anything, any sort of like serious abuse or anything like that. But I, I grew up as the forgotten child. Like my, I had an older brother that was two years older than me 
and he demanded a lot of attention mm-hmm. because he was sort of type kid you know it was always I mean he just demanded attention whether it be positive or, or negative attention so you know he was he would get in trouble at school or it was always something you know what I mean and he was uh probably a little more he got a, you know he 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 had a, a closer personality type to my dad so him and dad spent a lot more time together and me and mom were probably closer Whereas, you know, the hunting and the fishing and stuff, like I did it, but it wasn't like a passion of mine. It wasn't something that I, you know, really enjoyed, but it was something that my dad really was into. And my dad was a, it was an alcoholic. I think he quit drinking when I was like five. And so his, the way that he would sort of treat me and Aaron, my brother, it was... You know, I think he had, you know, mom always thought that dad kind of carried more guilt because he assumed maybe that Aaron remembered more about the times that he was drinking than I probably would have. And so Aaron got a certain amount of leeway and then them being similar personality types and this and that. Whereas, you know, I just kind of floated for, you know, the first 10, 12 years because I I didn't get in a lot of trouble. I was naturally Mm -hmm. athletic. I didn't, it just didn't take a lot of effort for me to be there. But at the same time, I was sort of had that forgotten child syndrome right. or mentality. And then, so then somewhere around high school, sophomore year, something like that. Uh, I'd had a girlfriend, you know, your first love and all that. And mm-hmm. we went out all through eighth grade, all through freshman year broke up and it was kind of one of those deals where you just never got closure, but you weren't really sure why, you know what I mean? Like there were some mm-hmm. circumstances and, and it was more or less her parents kind of, you know, said no more, you know? Okay. And, but other than that, there wasn't really any closure, any kind of, you know? And so then drinking became a, a thing with me mm. and drinking for me I started drinking probably when I was like 15, almost 16. And by the time I was getting out of high school, drinking had already quit being fun because wow. of how much I was overdoing it. And right. and by that, I mean, like, I got a DUI when I was 16. Oh, and my gosh. So then that was sort of whether it, you know... I would say that, and I and I probably drank hard like that till I was thirty-two years old, and it oh, was wow. it was it was in like it was. There were times where it wasn't an everyday deal, but for the most for the most part, for a better part of fifteen years, I was probably a functioning alcoholic. That was more functioning the more alcohol I had in my system because my body you know it was when I wasn't drinking that you noticed that I hadn't you know it it wasn't like I would show up to work hungover if I showed up to work hungover you would know that I was you know I'd just be going through more withdrawals and stuff rather than having a certain alcohol blood ratio right right and so then 
you know, get out of high school and, you know, not dealing with certain traumas from my past, from being a kid or the relationships or, you know, numbing myself, not wanting to be me, you know, all of these different things kind of all stacked on top of each other. You know, a lot of stuff I just didn't want to face and I didn't want to face myself and I didn't really have a lot of self-worth. And so anytime something would start going good, I'd start getting nervous and I would ultimately either self-destruct or sabotage myself because mm-hmm. I didn't deep down feel like I deserved to be in a good place or have good relationships. Not that I, not that I was able to contribute healthiness into a relationship of any kind, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, deep down, you know, the person that I was, you know, the person that I am, you know, a giving person that cares about everybody around them and stuff. But I, I, Later, when I started working through and, and doing work on myself and sort of figuring through some of these, you know, thought processes and mindsets and triggers and, you know, self-shaming and the internal dialogue and all of these sep- different things is that, you know, there was times where, like, I legitimately thought I was going crazy because I would, I, 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 I would be, you know, for be- lack of better use of words, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a I'm a, I'm an empath by nature. And so like, even knowing if I didn't talk to somebody or it wasn't really necessarily face to face or directly, you know, I would, I would sort of like, I, I, there was times where I'd be sitting there and I, everything would be fine and no big deal, no big deal. And then until I figured out what was going on, like somebody may have walked by my house and I never even seen them or talked to them, but if they were bummed out, then I would start and I would just start getting hit with all of these emotions and just being, mm-hmm. you know, go start getting depressed, start getting sad or whatever. And it was weird because I didn't know how to deal with any of that stuff, you know, just to, to yeah. figure out the trigger and identify it. And so then in my mid twenties, um, I was probably about 26, I think. So I, you know, I had 10 solid years of, of pretty hard drinking, which if you're dealing with traumas and dealing with baggage and dealing with being low or, you know, not able to figure out your triggers and, you know, you're just stacking a depressant on top of a depressant on top of a depressant every day. Yeah. Yeah. After a while, there's just no end in sight with any kind of addiction or a drinking or anything like that, or even self-destructing, when you do those kinds of things, you're going to bring outside troubles, anxiety, and stress. So like the thought that you're not going to end up in some sort of court system or some sort of toxic relationship or some sort of, you know what I mean? Most of the time, you're probably going to end up in all of them. You know, you're going to end up isolating yourself and, and, and sort of pushing away the decent people that are in your life. And you're going to be surrounded by the more narcissistic, passive aggressive, toxic personalities, the people who are, are, you know, misery loves company. And so you're, you're feeding off of each other and, and sort of, you know, and if any time that you start, you know, overdoing anything, you're going to find yourself either in some sort of situation where, you know, maybe the cops get involved and you end up in the system and maybe not, but you're going to be in situations that are probably unhealthy. And one of the situations that I had gotten into was we had gotten into a, a fight and it 
blew up and turned into this huge deal. And so then, you know, I was in a toxic relationship, unwilling to face, deal with all of these different, you know, emotional baggage and traumas and all of these things from, you know, childhood through teenage years through, you know, early adulthood. And then you stacked on top of it some pretty serious court implications that, you know, I think, I think by the time it was all said and done to go through the whole court process, I was on bail for two and a half years and it cost me $50,000 for a lawyer to sort through all of this mess because the people that we'd gotten in a fight with told the DA's office, all of this stuff that didn't actually happen and wasn't true. The DA mm. was going for going to, it was an assistant assistant district attorney who was going to be fighting for the district attorney job that upcoming year. So then so this was her backbone case. Right. So she took us to the grand jury. The grand jury indicted us on all of these things. And then it became this huge drawn out mess. Oh my God. Which is a lot of stress because yeah. You know, you're not allowed to do anything. And, you, you know, I mean, whether it's months, years, decades in jail, I mean, anytime you, you have this looming over your head, it's just stress that, that you normally don't carry around. Absolutely. And so then through the toxic relationship, you know, I'd went down, which is probably you know looking back now probably it wasn't the smartest idea was to go and so i went and met with a doctor and they put me on antidepressants so then i think it'd been probably i, I went to work uh, basically all we did was go to work and then went home and drank till i fell asleep and then got up and went to work mm -hmm. didn't talk to anybody i mean no communication with anybody outside of you know those two things and uh so one morning was sitting there and i didn't go to work was feeling extra low was looking at the antidepressants on the coffee table and it's like nine in the morning eight thirty, nine in the morning and i was already drinking you know i mean it was just i mean that's just how that's just how i was and so then wasn't paying attention, like, and, and you know, kind of in and out of it. But then I looked over and then like in the antidepressant bottle. Then I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and didn't know what to do. So I called the the toxic ex-girlfriend, because she was the only person that I knew that had ever taken antidepressants, been on medication, da 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 So then she had called, and then, then, it, then it became this huge deal, right? So then the sheriff show up, fire truck, ambulance. The court put a hold on me, right? So they take me up to the emergency room, and... The people, the doctors in the emergency room were like, look, here's the deal. Like, honestly, wouldn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, antidepressants, 
I mean, it, it make you sick or whatever, but it's not life threatening. Da 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 da. Okay, right. But, but, still probably not a good idea. Right. Well, they were more. I mean, like, yeah, that was concerning, and 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 these, you know, obviously, like, you know, a cry, a cry for help is a cry for help, you know, or like, yeah. obviously, like yeah. somebody's having a tough time, yada yada yada. But what was concerning everybody more was it was like nine nine thirty in the morning and i was walking talking fine no big deal like if, if you didn't if they wouldn't have drew my blood in the emergency room mm-hmm. they wouldn't have like <clears throat> he was like honestly when we drew your blood I, I i i almost didn't believe it because you're walking talking fine but my blood alcohol was 0.39 wow and so the court put a hold on me and then because of the way that treatment centers and all of these different things are set up they didn't have anywhere to put me because i didn't commit a crime so they couldn't take me to jail Mm -hmm. Uh, theoretically you know, I mean, if they really wanted to, they probably could have found a way, but they, you know, they're not going to take me to the drunk tank and, and put me in the drunk tank for three, four days till my right. blood alcohol returns to a normal place. And so the only place that they had that was available that they'd be able to send me because the court put a hold on me and be monitored by, you know, medical type people or people that, you know, because obviously when the court puts a hold on you, they're not letting you go be on your own until somebody signs off and takes liability takes saying, responsibility for saying you. that this person right that this person is okay but also mm-hmm. because they the you know law enforcement and the ambulance and stuff were the ones that showed up to my house they can't release me until my blood alcohol is under 0.08 till i'm sober yeah and so they sent me to the mental psych ward side of the hospital in in the bigger city near where i lived because then you know there's people to monitor you because obviously too like if if my blood alcohol is that high and i'm walking talking fine but it's morning time i'm not going to be able to wean myself off alcohol and so life's going to be rough when you start sobering up right and you know, thankfully, you know, thankfully and not thankfully, like, you know, I, one thing that would have dealt with the alcohol possibly sooner than, than it actually got dealt with would have been if I didn't, I never detoxed as hard as I should have, you know what I mean? Like I didn't really get the shakes real bad. I didn't, you know, I mean, there was elements of it all, but it wasn't deals where I would, I was laying there for two, three days puking my guts out or anything you know yeah but you know possibly if that would have happened sooner then maybe i wouldn't have you know been drink uh, drank so long and so then and and that was a eye-opening wild experience i mean it was it was really weird because sitting in that place i think i was in there for four days by the time that they cleared me and said you're fine to to be able to leave and so but i had to do all the same things as all the people that check themselves in there to to you know get mentally well or you know mm, and okay. so 
She had to talk to therapists and right, right. There was like six, eight, right. six or seven group group sessions, one on one sessions and stuff a day that I was having to go through, and then you know get checkups and and this and that. But like I was sitting there thinking that I'm completely normal around right. people that are just just you know like there's right. I mean there was people with like real mental issues you know what I mean and I and and at the time you're I didn't fine except for the self- drinking right 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 you know <laughs> in my mind yeah but then also like they they would have a lot of the psychology students and stuff like that run those meetings so there was I felt normal and then like the other normal person in the room was the the grad student or whatever that was running this meeting or that meeting and then there was just all these other wacko people that were, you know, on holds or had checked themselves in to, to get a mental break or or whatever their reasonings were. And then getting out of that, then you see the effects on, you know, then I got to go deal with real life. You know, I got to go be face to face with my brother and my parents and other people that I know and everybody you know, in a small community, like, it's not like it's a secret, like everybody knew what had happened. Right, right. Not that it was, you know, the drinking didn't surprise anybody, because obviously, you're not hiding that either. I mean, not when you're drinking like that, not in a small town. And then then it was a bit of a battle. You know, once some of the some of the stresses went away, and some of those things. But even after that, that didn't really that didn't really propel me into, you know, sort of facing myself in the mirror or or dealing with past or or sort of anything like that. You know, it kind of went right back to to numbing, not wanting to be myself, this and that. Same, you know, thought processes, same mindset, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a break for a while, but you know, for the most part, nothing really changed. A lot of like, pity me, I feel sorry for myself, and that kind of stuff. You know, the the typical self-sabotaging, you know, pity party stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then when I was, when I was 32, I had my daughter. And so that kind of, you know, maybe not to the, I, uh, from, you know, 26, late twenties to early thirties, you know, I still drank, but not to that extent. I mean, it was still, you know, would be considered heavy drinker probably, but not to that, to that extent of, you know, drink till I pass out and then wake up and do it all over again. Right. But the you know a lot of the internal feelings and the internal dialogue and just the you know thought process mindset didn't really change you know maybe lightened a little bit but still didn't change all that much and then when i was 32 my daughter and it a lot of things just it was weird you know like a lot of switches in my brain started flipping in different spots Mm -hmm. 
So like things that matter didn't matter anymore. And things that didn't matter necessarily started to matter a lot. And she was about two. I'd gotten to where I was doing. I wasn't drinking as much. Priorities shifted, you know, responsibilities kicked in and these and those and the others. Little by little, things were changing and this and that. And then right after she turned two, her mother and I split up. And then like three weeks later, my dad died unexpectedly. Oh, so then, so like, so all of a sudden, like, I'm a single father <laughs> and like, I just started getting used to the idea of just being a father. Right. And then I'm a single father. When me and her mom split up, I had moved back in with my parents because when that's you, what you do, you, that's what you do. You know, I mean, it, we weren't married, so it wasn't like a divorce, but same idea. Yeah. And so then I'm at my parents' house. A couple weeks later, my dad was, he was working out, trying to, he was getting back in shape because he wanted to run the Boston Marathon when he was 65 years old. And so he was running one morning and, and had died. And so like that, and then that, but I, I was, it was a weird deal because I, I, you know, my brother could go home, you know, come and, and see mom and her grief, go home and deal with his grief and, do, you know, and there was right. a separation between between the two. Whereas I just got back to my folks' house to get back on my feet and find a place and do all these things. And so, like, I was stuck grieving my relationship, figuring out that I'm a single father, grieving my dad dying, but then also being absorbed and stuck watching my mom's grief mm -hmm. because her husband had just died yeah and that's a lot it was and it 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 sent me into a a bit of a you know I'd gotten in a rut for you know a year year and a half two years where all I did was either hang out with my daughter or work you know basically that was that was just the two things that I did but during the that time also, I started, you know, uh, I think I think I average about sixty books a year on Audible, uh, wrapped around you know personality, mental health, early childhood development, um, psychology, mindset, anything wow. and everything, and then so you know, working with other people and, you know, having coaches and, and this and that and other people who'd been through similar things, you know, basically people that were, you know, three to five years ahead of me in any given mm -hmm. space, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then little by little, as I became more aware and dealt with, you know, the traumas of my childhood, breaking generational curses, you know, trying to not trickle those down to my daughter, you know what I mean? And then just sort of just understanding, you know, like my parents did the best they could with the tools that they had. They were both yeah. raised in places that were sort of disconnected 
you know, the generational curses coming down to me was, you know, either alcoholism or that kind of, you know, the disconnect. Yeah. My dad's dad was an alcoholic and da, 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 da. my mom's parents weren't necessarily, you know, nurturing, loving that kind of, it just wasn't that kind of a household, you know? And mm-hmm. so the feeling of, you know, growing up feeling lonely, like it's, it's not that they were intentionally distant, you know what I mean? They just were yeah. doing the best they could with the tools that they had, Absolutely. But, you know, learning to realize that, you know, that's what it was makes a big difference and then doing work and, you know, mentally getting rid of, you know, the victim mentality is a big issue. You know what I mean? Like nobody's out. You create your own reality is what I started learning. And the Uh more that you wanted to create a better reality, the better reality got. But if you wanted to sit and, and live in a pity party and poor me, poor me, poor me, then that's the life you're going to have. If you, if you sit around and talk about being broke all the time, you're going to be broke all the time because you don't honestly feel internally that you deserve to have money. And so even if you do get a little bit of money, you're going to throw it away as fast as you get it because you don't feel like you deserve it. So until you, you know, you change your paradigms around certain issues and do these certain things, which in turn, you know, during some of those phases, you know, after I had my daughter, Not that, like, so I'll say this in a way that doesn't promote, like, have a kid because it'll fix your life. Because that's definitely not the case. <laughs> that you know that doesn't I mean? work very often, no. <laughs> but after my daughter was born, uh, the drinking lessened from what it was, which was already a little bit less, but you would still probably say, you know, an alcoholic or whatever. And then... After me and her mother had split up and when I started doing the work on myself and started doing the work on myself, like at one point I was sitting there and I was talking to my mom and like I I had quit drinking, but it was like it wasn't even conscious. Right. And so it just I just don't because I just don't. I mean, it's not a deal where I. I have to put conscious effort into it. I didn't need to, you know, I grew up in AA and like there are definitely people that need to go to AA and have sponsors and, and work 12 steps. And it's a lifelong battle. And every time that they see a beer commercial on TV, they have to clench their fist and, and you know, white knuckling it the rest of their lives or or whatever. But for me, it, it wasn't even, you know, I mean, I'll every so often, you know, if it's Christmas Eve at over at somebody's house for dinner or Thanksgiving or something like that, I'll, I might have a drink or two something, but it's not something that I, that I put a lot of conscious effort into. And even if I do drink, it's not something I have to consciously keep myself from getting drunk or anything like that, but. Cause you don't need to numb you know, yourself anymore. Well, I don't. And I'm, and I mean, for the most part, you know, the only conscious effort with the drinking that ever came, came into play was, is for whatever reason, in my mind, I did not want to be somebody like a dad who couldn't go pick their kid up. Mm-hmm. And so if I was drinking and my ex called and said, you know, your, our daughter wants to come and stay with you tonight, da 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 da, like I never wanted to be, have to try to figure out how to get from A to B or get her to my house. Right. Or da, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, you know, after doing 
certain work and looking at yourself and internally, you know, making progress and stuff like that. Like at some point you just, you know, I just sort of re- you thought about or realized that, you know, alcohol doesn't serve me. It doesn't do anything for me. Like there's no benefit for me drinking or, yeah. you know, a lot of people at all really. Cause you know, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't do anything for your health, you know? No. And then as I've also gotten older, you know, the last couple of years, and I noticed it a lot um, this last 4th of July. I can tell now because I don't drink when I do drink, if I do like even overdo it just a little tiny bit. There are certain organs that aren't functioning right. You know what I mean? Like if I drink, you could tell that I drink because my face will swell up. Right. Even if it's just yeah. a, you know, a few beers because my body doesn't process the alcohol. And if I, you know, go to sleep before my body processes all that alcohol, then I'll get sick the next morning because it wants to get rid of all the extra alcohol that's still in my system. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, I mean, that's not fun either. I don't want to deal with that. No. And I'm kind of older now. Like, I don't want, you know, I don't want to be it's not going to get any better from here on out. No, no. <laughs> Well, that's basically, you know, I mean, leading up to, to it, you know, it was just, I don't think, you know, for the most part, you know, I can almost, I'm the I'm pretty certain that, that in no, at no point in time did I really think that I wanted to die necessarily, yeah. but Something needed to change. Whether I was conscious of of me knowing, you know what I mean? Uh, consciously, I probably could have lived in misery forever if I could I could rationally keep myself there. But right. subconsciously, like wasting your entire life to do nothing and just sit there and feel sorry for yourself, sooner or later you're you're, you know. Well, your subconscious brain wants to go, you know what I mean? Yeah. Your weight, you know, like the pity party's over. It's time to quit. You know, whether if you're not going to make strides or try to make a change, then, then we'll force you into it. You know, the universe or however, you know, whatever you want to call it, because you're going to get, you know, if you're not doing, if you're not, if you don't live with a purpose, you know, I, th- I think that was some of it too. I just didn't have any purpose in day-to-day life. I didn't, yeah. I didn't like myself. I didn't want to necessarily look at myself in the mirror or, you know, be around myself. I didn't think I was worthy of love or connection or anything like that. And so it was easier to just numb myself, self-destruct and hide basically you know what i mean by that at that point i had isolated myself from everybody that i was around like most of the people that i were friends with and stuff like that had quit coming over because every time they'd come over i was just incoherent you know i was wasn't even weren't fun to be around (laughs) no no not at all yeah yeah it's interesting you're thank you for sharing your story because what's unique i think about your story is that like there wasn't any one big sort of traumatic thing that led you down this road. Like it was just kind of normal things like 
Right. You know, and it just sort of one, what seemed like one normal decision after another, just because like you said, you didn't have a purpose. You didn't feel good. You didn't, there was nothing extraordinary going on one way right. or the other, nothing super, super bad, nothing super, super good. And you just kind of were led down this path of mediocreness. That's not really a word. Yeah. Well, I mean, I it's the real word. I've, and then you, try to, related it. Oh, you try to feel better. Right. I've always related it. The easiest way that I, that I've ever explained it to, to, to anybody was so I was a snowball that got lofted down a hill. And mm -hmm. as it just kept going, everything just kept get stacking up and getting bigger and bigger, whether, you know, not, you know, feeling like a loser because I wasn't ha living with purpose and then dealing, not dealing with traumas from past. And then little by little, all of these things just had gotten bigger and bigger and bigger because they, you know, and then you start adding a depressant like alcohol on top of it all. And then you yeah. start adding guilt because like, oh, I could have been, I could have done that. It could have been there. Could have done this. Should have been there. Should have been a part of that. But people don't want me around because I'm a drunk. Now look how guilty I am. I should feel more sorry for myself. Da, 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 da. And then sooner or later, that snowball just hits a big rock. Yeah. <laughs> and everything yeah. just goes flying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like so many of, of the guests on, this podcast, a lot of them will say, you know, I, I didn't necessarily want to die. I just needed the situation I was in the life I was living to end, you know, mm -hmm. and we just needed that, that big, that big change. And sometimes it seems like not being here is, is the, maybe the easiest way to, to make that change. And it's not, <laughs> there are right. lots of other ways to make the change. Um, but we usually have to, you know, like they, the AA thing, you know, you got to hit rock bottom first. Something generally, something really bad has to happen um, for you right. to change. Or in your case, having your daughter, something really good has to happen. Um, unfortunately, that's generally not the the change right. that that happens to most of us when we're in that state but but it could um but some, it, something big one way or the other right and where you're like i can't live this way anymore yeah oh for sure and and i mean with regards to my daughter you know it was a big, big change and it shifted for you know perspectives and importance and priorities and purpose and all of these things but I was I had I'd already become aware of certain things that needed to change beforehand you know what I mean and then one other factor that you know so my daughter's mother and I, we were together, had her, were together for two more years, and then it, it just didn't, it, it didn't work out. You know, nobody, I mean, there wasn't any crazy, 
necessarily. I mean, obviously, if you got a drunk and, you know, the stress of babies and, you know, trying to have a life and this and that. And, you know, but some things, you know, the way that I was raised and the way that my ex was raised were conflicting in, in regards to, you know, that just added, it just didn't work. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? We just weren't right for each other, whatever. The other part of that is, is that the relationship that we have now in regards to my daughter, we would more or less be considered more of an outlier in the co-parenting type space because like my daughter is in a blended family now you know my ex her partner he has a son but we all sit together at school functions we all sit together at the sports deals we all barbecue in the summertime holidays are no big deal my ex and i frequently talk you know in 99 percent of every conversation has in a roundabout or direct way you know something to do with my daughter whether it be schedules you know time this and that and everything that we have figured out at co-parenting wise we have just figured out because we're two adults trying to raise a child as opposed to trying to hurt each other use her as a weapon like my daughter comes and goes as she pleases if she wants to stay with me she stays with me if she wants to stay moms then she stays at moms if she's grounded here she's grounded there if she's grounded there she's grounded here there's no pitting but at the same time like there's no you know manipulating there's no using her as a weapon there's no using her to hurt the other person and and these things and those things and so if if i wouldn't have done work on myself and sort of gotten through my own bullshit and 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 got to where i you know have a peaceful happy content life the way that i am i i don't have the stress anymore i mean obviously like when you first split up there's a lot of going to be conflict and there's going to be issues and and this and that but not having to deal with the constant stress of conflict with my daughter's mother makes a huge difference you know Mm -hmm. as far as mental health and like you know, I, it's, but, but that's, that's you know, also I, the, I, the, the circle, right? Like you did the work right? so that right. you have less stress with her, which makes right. everything better. You know, it's, well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not, if, it, if that want... didn't come about on its own. Right. You don't just right. magically and have a great relationship no, now. <laughs> no, no, no. And I mean, you know, as anything else in life peace generates more peace anger generates more anger content generates more content you know or animosity you know what i mean if you want to hate somebody you can sit there and find everything that they've done for the last 15 years to really make sure that you to your core despise that person or you can just grow up and you know decide to be happy Right. And I, and I, and I, and I, I, I talk and work with a lot of people who, who are trying to figure out co-parenting and trying to, you know, get, I, 
I feel like my situation should be the normal and the ones who are at each other's throats and using the courts as their own personal police force to hurt the other person should be mm-hmm. the outliers. You know what yeah. I mean? Should be the un- uncommon, unnormal ones rather than ones who, you know, we chose to have a child. Let's be adults and try to raise the best child that we can. Yeah. And not fall into these statistics of, you know, single motherhood with no father around and all of the stuff that comes along with that. And, and so, you know, but you're right. You know, if you don't, you know, I, you know, figure out your own triggers, you know, if I, if, you know, if, if drinking was still an issue for me, I could sit down and figure out what triggers me to want to drink. You know what I mean? Yeah. And once I figure out what those triggers are, then I just don't avoid the, you know, I avoid those triggers. I avoid those things that are going to become a chain reaction to something self-destructive or something, you know, where it puts me in a, a depressed state. You know what I mean? If I wake up in the morning and I feel low for, you know, no other reason than maybe something that happened in a dream, I don't remember, but I just, you know, <laughs> I have a playlist on my phone that I know is going to put me in a better mood. You know, if I and and stuff like that, and they're just little—I mean, it's little things and little tricks. But you know, if 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 you're in a funk or you you feel low, listening to music that's going to compound that and make you feel lower is not your best bet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or if if you're going through some sort of traumatic, life-altering sort of situation. You know, if you and your your partner split up watching romantic comedies where people are getting divorced or finding puppy love is probably not going to help you get out of whatever headspace that, that is you're already in. You know, it's just going to make it worse. Yeah. So some of those triggers and, and have helped, you know, quite a bit. Yeah. So out of all of the hundreds and hundreds of books you listen to. What is your favorite? Uh, I listen to The Body Keeps the Score probably once a year. Yes. And it's... Gabor Mate, right? No. Uh, nope, I'm wrong. Uh, something Vaughn Vander, Vander Kolk. Von der Kolk. Um, but it it covers a a lot of stuff, but I think it's like 20 hours on a on 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 like the book on to have it, you know. I I I'm not very good at sitting down and reading, but I'll Mm -hmm. listen to audiobooks because I've I've trained myself into I've, I've I've trained my mind into realizing that it's important to listen to them and so whether somebody's a monotone voice or a very you know good voice to listen to it doesn't really matter to me you know like that's the biggest hang-up i've with people is i, I like audiobooks but i you know if it's not somebody yeah. who talks just right you know then say it's not important to you you know if you make yeah. yourself believe it's important then you'll you'll do it but and so it's a long book and it goes through a lot of different things but you know the physical aspects of trauma and how, you know, the brain doesn't differentiate trauma. I mean, trauma is trauma. 
Like yep. just because you consciously can say, well, I wasn't physically, you know, my, my dad didn't hit me with a belt or hit me with a wrench. Like it's not the same as your trauma that, you know, your body's not, not doing it that way. Um, so that's one that I listen to at least once a year, probably, but it takes, it takes me about three days to get through the whole book, but I can mm-hmm. listen to audiobooks all day at work and I listen to them all afternoon. I just, I don't watch TV. Um, another one that I listen to is when, when I started doing a lot of the, the improvement on myself and meditation became a thing that I really wanted to explore, you know, the not getting wrapped up into, you know, constant thoughts or drifting into unnecessary emotions and, and, you know, sort of being able to objectively look at those things as for what they are and just kind of let them go instead of, you know, living in those spaces for too long or living on those thought processes or, you know, following that chain of thought to somewhere that you don't really need to go. Yeah. And so one of the, so I got into, I started doing the meditating with the Headspace app. And so that, that guy, Andy Pettikum had written a book, you know, uh, the guide to Headspace and meditation. And so it went through like, sort of goes in deep, you know, like the, the introduction into meditation and, and mindfulness and being aware and and you know it's it's a real deep good i mean it's good it's a great book but it helps you understand the you know what you're doing while you're trying to meditate you know you're not just sitting there right. like blocking your thoughts out and it, and it's like an introduction I to like, meditation yeah and he goes through and he kind of talks about like all the mistakes that you can make and thought processes and, and ideas that are misleading or wrong about meditation he had. And so it goes through and, and, you know, cause he was a monk and, and oh, okay. when he, when he got, he left college and went, you know, Tibet and Moscow and all these different monasteries, but he was a, a monk. And so it's all the, you know, when he would have this issue come up, then he would go and talk to the teacher at the monastery. And then he would, in the book, it tells, you know, what they, how they explained it to him and how he would sort of get over these certain hurdles and stuff. And so, you know, don't be a slave to your mind. Cool. And those two are probably two of the bigger ones. And then uh, there's, um, never, never split the difference. But it's uh, negotiating, like your life depends on it. It's uh, oh, okay. the lead international negotiator for the FBI oh, wrote a book. Okay. But it, it goes into, it's interesting more so for the human psychology part of it. You know what I mean? Because you're negotiating all the time. You know, I have to negotiate with my daughter what time to go to bed. Right. And, right. But a lot, of, a lot of the negotiating is, you know, empathy and understanding personality types and understanding you know who that you're you're conversing with and then another book the she written it's called cues um and hers is 
and well, the second one's cues. The first one's captivate, and it's a deep dive into personality types and people, and okay. you know how to form instant connections, how to see people for more of what they are from their actions and their body language rather than the words that they say. Um, oh, interesting. I tend to be at this point more selective with the people who I would have more in my inner circle. And so mm-hmm. being yep. able to sort of read people, empathize, get a, a sort of feeling and use body language. And, but also it goes through the different layers of, you know, once you figure out who your core personality and thought process and way of thinking is, then you can start to understand the other people's, you know, more so onions, you know? Yeah. And so like she, she breaks down the love languages, but instead of using love languages, if you think about them like appreciation languages and so Um, okay you know that would be one layer of like the onion and then the other one would be you know if you're dealing with somebody who's an ambivert or an introvert or an extrovert that's also prioritizes time together rather than gifts and then you get into the analytical type brain or the people pleaser or the assertive type brain and so once you can start dissecting all the people that are you're around so if you have a people pleaser type who's introverted and then they the way that they seem you know feel appreciation is you know words of affirmation so then you know if i'm working with somebody and i can figure out that there's these three types of people yeah then it's easier to to show appreciation by telling somebody they're doing a good job, but they don't want to do it. You don't want to do it in front of a bunch of people because they're an introvert. And then if they're a people pleaser, you know, when they're saying something, you know, that it may be coming from, you know, more of a pleasing type place rather than being the truth, you know, so those are just helping to to navigate life really because everything's a society yeah yeah right yeah and and, you know everything's a you know my the the people who are close to me and and the people that i interact with you know i i'm aware of the fact that that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time around whether it be tv personality people in real life you you know yeah so i'm being aware of that i'm selective on who i'm around a lot and the mm-hmm. faster that I can get to know whether or not I want that person to have that sort of influence on me, the better I feel about interacting with people on, on, you know, a social basis. And it, you know, for the most part, you know, when, when I get to the end of my life, whatever numbers on a bank account or properties or car or whatever, isn't going to be one of those things I think about. So my idea of being successful is if when, if my daughter is a better, more confident, more giving, competent, generally happy 
person than I am with less trauma and baggage to deal with from her childhood, then I succeeded. Then I will feel successful. Yes. But in order to help guide and shape her, navigate the world as it is rather than the way that I, I would like it to be. Yeah. The more tools that I have, the more equipped she's going to be. And so, exactly. you know, uh, yeah. it interests me, but also some of it is, is, is directly related to her because the more that, you know, be an optimist, be open to everybody, love everybody. But at the same time, there are real dangers in the world. And there are a lot of things that you would think have your best interest in mind that really don't care about anything but their bottom line. And right. so being able to objectively see people for who they are and their actions rather than their words is going to be really helpful to her to navigate it, whatever life she chooses to live, you know? Yeah. The more we learn for ourselves, the more we can teach others. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story and your wisdom with uh, our listeners. And um, I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Remember that you are loved. You are worthy. You are valuable, you are meant for more, and that it really does get better. If you are in crisis, there are numbers that you can call or text to get the help that you need. That information for Canada and the US is in the description below each episode. If you are in immediate crisis, please call 911. We love you, and I hope you'll listen again.